Hello and welcome to Next on WQLN. I'm your host, Marcus Atkinson. If you get a chance, go to our page on Facebook and like the page. Join us on Twitter at 814 Next Lend your voice to the dialogue. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is another part of our Crucial Conversations series. If you follow the show, you probably heard our show of African-American uh, panelists talking about some of the hard issues in the African-American community. We got a lot of great feedback on that show. There's so much dialogue going on in the greater community now in this country, be it politically, spiritually, everything from immigration to abortion, the list goes on and on and on. And there's some voices that are just dominant in that discourse. And so having had that conversation with the African-American community, one of the voices in community that always strikes me as uh, being dominant and influential is that of the white evangelical. The evangelical movement has been a very fascinating thing to me. And so be it you talking about uh, Trump, the outlook on Black Lives Matter, law and order, all of these different things, it has been a dominant voice in the public discourse. And so one of my favorite guests, Chuck Camerata, who also joins me on the Public's Voice Media, we sat down and talked about this and he put a book on my radar that was entitled, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and, a fract and Fractured a Nation. And I thought that's a hot title unto itself. And so he put the book on my radar, I read it, and lo and behold, it was a very, very fascinating look into that world. Understanding that this is not a, an endorsement of this writer's outlook, but I thought it was very educational, even if you scream foul on some of the points that she makes. And so to analyze this book and some of the points that were made, and some of the, uh, the takeaways from the book, we bring in three very special guests, First, we have with us Mr. Chuck Camaradas. We talked about host of Why on the Public's Voice. Chuck, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. We've got Reverend Dave Edmonds from the Bell Valley and Elmwood Presbyterian Church. Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And joining us via Zoom is Reverend Brittany Knight from First Presbyterian Church of the Covenant. Brittany, welcome to the show. Thank you. So before we get started, I want to play this introductory clip. The, the book is by uh, Dr. I, I didn't write down, Dr. Dumay. Dr. Kristen Dumay, and the book is a very fascinating look into this world. Before we go into it, I want to just play this clip where Dr. Dumay talks about the reaction that she got to this book that has some very sharp points that it makes. Dr. Dumay. Talk to me a little bit about the reaction to the book itself before we get into the content. Sure. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I, I think the reaction has been overwhelming and overwhelmingly positive, which is not exactly what we anticipated uh, when the book released. It's a provocative book. Uh, it's been described as urgent and sharp elbowed. And I think that comes through from the subtitle on. And uh, at the so, so our surprise, it was in, in the fact that uh, white evangelicals themselves, many of them have really embraced this book, have, have said, you know, this is true and uh, we need to grapple with this. This book started, the idea for this book started more than 15 years ago, actually, when uh, students at the university where I teach, Calvin University, it's a, a Christian university, brought to my attention uh, this literature on Christian manhood that was extremely popular in evangelical circles. Mm. 
Uh, yep. They introduced me to John Eldridge's book, Wild at Heart. And uh, that book uh, sketches out a very militant conception of what it is to be a Christian man. God is a warrior God. Men are made in his image and every man has a battle to fight. And this was in the early years of the Iraq war when my attention was first drawn to this. And so I was reading this like militant uh, conception of Christian manhood and Christianity itself as I was seeing all this survey data that showed how white evangelicals were far and away more likely to support that war, support preemptive war in general, condone the use of torture. And so I just started to, um, to ask what one might have to do with the other. And what I saw was uh, this vision of rugged Christian masculinity wasn't based so closely on the Christian scriptures. Instead, they were looking to Hollywood heroes, to Mel Gibson's William Wallace from the movie Braveheart, to John Wayne, to mythical warriors and, and heroes. And so there's really this kind of secular image of masculinity, of heroic, uh, even violent masculinity that was supplanting the image of, of Jesus from the Gospels. That was Dr. Kristen Cobus Dumay. Chuck, give us an idea of how this book landed on your radar and, and why it fascinated you so? I think a lot of us in, in the evangelical church, um, and, and that's kind of where I began um, my journey, it is uh, we've struggled with reconciling the Jesus that we read in the scriptures uh, and, and his teaching about uh, compassion and love, love even your enemy, uh, and the whole segment of the Old Testament scriptures that focus on uh, prophetic literature, we call. And uh, uh, that prophetic literature is about justice. And um, there, there are characteristic um, passages that talk about we don't need your religious ritual. That's not what God wants. What God wants is your uh, faithfulness to caring about people, your faithfulness to the community. Um, what God calls for is justice. And, uh, and so that's in me, and that's kind of a, a ferment that works against some of the things that I was seeing in the evangelical church. And, and I came to, a, to where Dr. Dumay is long before her book but her book just put all the pieces together for me. It's, it's really the most profound book I've read in a long time. Brittany, having a sense of familiarity with this world, give us your reaction to the premise of the book and some of the principles that you know, or some of the points that she makes in the book based upon your knowledge of this movement and this culture. Yeah, so I come from a similar background as Chuck did. Um, many, uh, the background that I have started in the militant evangelical um, movements. So for me, when I was growing up, it was a battlefield of the mind, right? Um, this idea that we all have a battle to fight. And I'm familiar with John Eldridge's book that she also brings, uh, you know, as the basis of her research. Uh, it was still being read when I was in college and even in seminary. There were some um, colleagues of mine that loved that book. Um, and so these basic principles of, um, you know, Jesus as this militant, this strong, this white um, character has carried on so much that it got out of control um, at some point. I think that the basis of it may have started off small, but it's gone out of control as we've seen in society. 
as we've seen, um, not only in our churches, but in the greater community at large. Um, one of the things that I will just offer as a, as a story when I was in seminary, which wasn't long ago, I, I graduated in 2016, um, we had a womanist feminist course um, on theology. So it was all female theologians that we were studying. And there was such a, um, you know, conflict on, in some people on campus about having this course that they signed up for it. And they were all white males and they were so adamant that everything that we were learning was not true. That was not found in the Bible. And it was at the same time that the election was going on, um, where you really saw, uh, white supremacist thought come to the surface um, in the election of 2016. Um, so there's still parts of that that are left in all of our churches, even though I'm from a denomination that is leans more liberal, that is more progressive. There's still this thought that the male is the head of the household and that that male needs to project this tough guy, Jesus Christ image. Um, and that's still something that we are wrestling with, even in our churches, but in the greater society at large. David, give us your thoughts on this. <laughs> How do I follow my esteemed colleague, Brittany, on that? Um, wonderful thoughts to share. I, I think I followed in, in Chuck and Brittany's footsteps as well, growing up in an experience that was actually mainline church, but then eventually because of evangelical leadership, um, uh, grew up in an evangelical experience. And I, I, I value some of that. I value the spirituality of some of that. Uh, I value how that uh, kind of brought me closer uh, into what I understood as, as Christ's embrace. Um, but I was also very naive to, uh, uh, to the hidden kind of agenda of a lot of that that has developed over the years. And I was sharing uh, with Chuck recently that, um, you know, prior to the last five years or so, um, I, I felt like what I've discovered in the last uh, short period of time um, has been a, a, a pimple exploding. I didn't realize it was under the surface and, and very naive to it. And uh, so this, this kind of um, experience of modern evangelicalism um, for me, um, I was, I felt, um, angered and frustrated by it. I felt betrayed by it. Um, this is not the evangelicalism that I knew and understood. Right. Um, and, um, and maybe part of that is just, I've been naive to what, uh, evangelical, evangelicalism has been about in the last few decades. Um, so I, I really have been, I appreciate the, the call to the book because um, I have not had a chance to read it all the way through and looking forward to uh, diving in more and more. But um, the, the chance to be confronted with the history of that movement um, is, is just piquing my internal uh, fascination in a great way. I think David sets us up well for this next segment because I want to go to a clip where Dr. Dumay talks about this movement. 
not necessarily being hijacked and, and using politics just as a, as a vantage point right now. Some people look at the, what led up to the election of Donald Trump and they say that, well, it, it seems as though the evangelical movement has been hijacked. No such thing. Dr. DeMay talks about that and how there is really a history of some of the very things that you see and that they're now just bubbling up to the surface in a more poignant manner. Dr. DeMay talks about the fact that this hasn't been hijacked. Let's go to the clip. I would push back against those who suggest that somehow evangelicalism has been hijacked by uh, by partisan politics. Uh, that that gets the history wrong, right? White evangelicals were there at the origins of, of this uh, kind of this partisan shift, the partisan realignment. Uh, we see that in terms of the Southern strategy. You know, we're talking about white evangelicals. We're, we're talking about a lot of white Southerners. And uh, so the making of the modern Republican party from really the 1960s on, uh, evangelicals were there working from the ground up. And so this, this really does go hand in hand. This isn't that you have evangelicals out here and somehow they got brainwashed or they got manipulated into uh, this, this partisan stance. Uh, they weren't really there at the beginning. And so it, it really does go hand in hand. And yes, for white evangelicals, for conservative white evangelicals, uh, this uh, us versus them mentality has been really critical. Uh, but the enemy continues to, to morph. And so originally it was a very clear enemy, communism, right? Communism was anti-God, anti-family, and anti-American. Very clear. And then, and then you have secular humanism, and you have feminism, and you have globalism or the UN, and then you have radical Islam, and then you just have Democrats. And right, the enemy can, can shift. And originally, when I started working on this project, uh, I, I kind of understood evangelical militancy as a response to fear. All right. They're afraid of demographic decline. They're afraid of their, you know, losing religious liberties and so on. So, so kind of what, what, uh, what might you expect? But of course they're going to lash out. That was the narrative that many evangelicals themselves advanced. What I came to see historically was more often than not, uh, evangelical leaders stoked fear in the hearts of their followers in order to consolidate their own power. And so once I, I saw that pattern, I had to kind of flip that script and that helped me make sense of really this entire narrative. And so Chuck, I'll come back to you in just a second. One of the things that really caught my attention with this is that for quite some time, I found myself in circles that fit this description in many ways. And pre-Donald Trump, pre-Black Lives Matter, there was a heavy push for let's bring people together, let's bring the races together and, and, and you know, the, the whole cry of togetherness from Jesus and unity and blah, blah, blah. Boy, when those other factors set in, the dialogue shifted dramatically behind closed doors. And you could see the struggle for a lot of people, not just with what they saw society that followed that same ideology doing, but even amongst themselves. And so I wanna start with you, Chuck, if I can get just get, an honest assessment from all three of you, when these societal factors kicked in, the, the, the political environment that was very contentious, you know, the, the, the immigration issues, the Black Lives Matter issue, George Floyd, all of these things, this perfect storm of just stuff. What did the conversation sound like in homogenous groups at your churches? I'd been at at my church for quite a long time by then. And so we had a culture in my church where 
where we could talk about pretty much anything honestly. And, and I had kind of a reputation for being willing to say what, what I felt needed to be said. So I'm not sure my congregation was indicative of congregations in general. But I think one of the big things that happened was that by and large across the church, we were just afraid to talk about these things. And so we didn't. You would hear from our congregation members things like, well, you can't talk about politics in church. When the reality was that on, on the right with the white evangelical movement, everything was about politics. Their, their politics and their theology were so wed together that you couldn't separate them. But when you talked about politics uh, in a way that questioned some of those some of those political theological positions, then it became uh, you're, you're dividing the church. And uh, so I think mostly what we did is we buried our heads in the sand and just kind of marshaled, uh, marched on, hoping it would all go away. And to a certain degree, in the mainline churches where we have people on both ends of the spectrum, where we have evangelicals and progressive churches like Brittany's and Dave's, in most of those places, we are not taking the risk of trying to talk about these things because we're afraid we're going to lose the congregation or at least a big portion of the congregation. Um, so we're, we're averse to conflict. Mm -hmm. Brittany, let me have your take on that and give me your reaction to some of what you've heard and seen as these things in society have played out. So a lot of what Chuck um, described was happening here at our church and also a lot of churches that I know, even, you know, other friends that I have um, in churches in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia and Washington, D.C., that it didn't really matter where you were. There was this wide spectrum and you couldn't really address the issue during 2016. Um, one of the things that Chuck knows and Dave Edmonds knows is that I can't not say something. Um, and so for me, um, as Dave was speaking earlier, I realized that for the evangelical movement, what really, um, the, the good thing that I got from the evangelical movement was that I began to love scripture. Um, they taught me about scripture and I loved it so much. I went to seminary to learn all about it. And once I learned the scriptures, I couldn't turn my eyes away from this right conservative, um, political thought, because it wasn't lining up to what I was seeing in the scriptures and what I was learning about in seminary. Um, and so for me, I tried to approach the subject and maybe not even the subject, but open up avenues for it by using the scriptures, because you can't read Hosea and Isaiah and Jeremiah without seeing some echoes of that happening in our real world today. Um, so that opened up some dialogue between, you know, the two opposing sides as we see it. But for our church, we really weren't outspoken until um, the murder of George, George Floyd happened in 2020. And that's when we spoke up. Um, and it was me as the associate pastor, but also our senior pastor, Reverend Chris Weichman, Seth Coomer, who is our community director here we all spoke up against that and supported that. We lost a few people, but at the same time, this dialogue appeared between the evangelical right and also the progressive left, um, where we could have a conversation about the two. Um, but it wasn't until 2020 where that was really 
um, able to happen. Mm -hmm. Dave, give us your take. Uh, I, I serve two congregations, one that I've been at for 18 years, kind of a smaller uh, country congregation, and one that I have just started at about four years ago um, that is more located in the city, more of a kind of neighborhood center. Um, but at both places, when I began to become more vocal uh, about racial justice, about, uh, you know, uh, the, the kind of falsehoods of political perspectives that will not open themselves to actual fact and truth, but only to their slant on the whole thing. Um, when I started addressing some of those things, and I, I, I never see myself as being very political, especially from the pulpit, but the more I address some of those issues from a, a scriptural perspective, we, uh, you know, we lost uh, folk at both congregations, and people would just slip away. They wouldn't, they wouldn't even bother to come and, and, can we have a conversation about this? They would just slip away. And, and then you'd realize after, hey, we haven't seen this person or that person for you know, a month, what's going on? And sooner or later, somebody who knew the inside story would say, yeah, they left because they weren't happy uh, about what was being said in the pulpit. And um, so obviously you're gonna take a lot of personal uh, kind of uh, guilt and shame about that. But at the same time, I, I was kidding with, with Chuck earlier. Uh, once, once heard a pastor say that he started at a church and preached it down to 16 before it started to grow again. I don't know that that's what's happening, right. but, uh, but I, do, uh, I do appreciate um, being encouraged that uh, sometimes people are leaving because of their own personal battles and struggles. Chuck, go ahead. I think I think that one of the things you get out of Dumay's book, and, and Dr. Dumay's book is powerful in the sense that it shines light into corners of the evangelical movement that um, have remained sort of in the dark. And what encourages me is that as I find, uh, as that information gets out, I hear people who have been in the church for a long time, people who, who would probably consider themselves evangelicals, who are saying, I didn't know that and I, I can't believe that is happening. And they're now looking for new ways to think about things. Uh, so there's a ferment in the church uh, that I think is kind of growing. The ball is rolling in the right direction. And we, as leaders in the church, we have to challenge people by putting that stuff out. So when Dave says uh, people were getting upset that he was preaching things that were challenging and uncomfortable, that, that's really who we are to be. That's who Jesus was. I say to people all the time, you remember what they did to Jesus, right? <laughs> they killed Jesus. Uh, and the prophets in the Old Testament, many of them were killed and ostracized. So it, why would we expect any less when we're preaching that particular truth, that God is about love? And when you preach love for all people, regardless of race or, or background or religion or gender or Whatever the whatever the category is, that's that's where the power is to change the world, and so we lose some people. I, I, I'm retired now, so I'm not losing anybody. So I can do this and say this, but um, uh, without consequence. But I, I think we just have to recognize that truth 
requires that um, we be courageous and that we be okay with losing people. So I want to quote two statements, one from the first statement being from a uh, black woman of faith, the other one being from a white man of faith. From the black woman of faith, she said to me, white evangelical churches want the entire planet to buy into their viewpoint of what society should be, but they don't want to take the time to get to know who you are, what your culture is all about, and heaven forbid, step in your shoes and understand what this experience, this human experience looks like from your vantage point, be it a different color, different culture, different race, different country. Give me your reactions to that. I think it's true. Um, you know, we've, I lived in Fairview for 30, I still live in Fairview. I've been there for 35 years. And until a few years ago, it was just such a comfortable little bubble. Um, there weren't very many people of color. The whole community was Christian. So it was really easy for me to ignore and not to connect with people whose experience was different than mine. Uh, when I started traveling the world, going to the third world, going to Africa, I began to make those kinds of connections. Uh, so I think it's easy for white evangelicals to do that because most of us live in these little bubbles. And if you live in a bubble, in a safe place, you just don't think much outside that bubble. Dave. I, uh, I completely agree with, with Chuck. Uh, until about 10 years ago, when our uh, presbytery here in Northwest Pennsylvania uh, established a mission partnership with another presbytery in the upper northern area of Ghana on the west coast of Africa, I, my mind was just completely burst open in terms of other people's culture and experience and life and the kinds of, uh, of uh, issues that they deal with on a daily basis that I never even have to think about. Um, just kind of took me to a whole different place. And uh, <laughs> it just, it just, it still kills me that, um, that again, I also live in a community that is less diverse. Um, but uh, I have two older daughters who both live in New York City. And um, uh, uh, as I've met their friendships, their community of caring, um, and it's such a wonderful um, expression of diversity in terms of religion, race, sexuality, uh, age. Um, I, I am not only am I hopeful, proud, but their experience has completely opened my experience in ways that, that I never saw coming. Nice. And so that appreciation, as, as Chuck shared, of, of a, an experience of diversity is what I really think what uh, scripture is all about. Mm -hmm. and, and we have just missed the boat in so many ways mm -hmm. in evangelicalism. Brittany? So as I was listening to that quote, it reminded me of a conversation I had with several women here at our church last Tuesday. We have a women's group that meets. We're studying um, the second Corinthians, Apostle Paul. It's called Reconciling Paul. And uh, there was a conversation to be had about uh, the evangelical church or particularly non-denominational churches that are evangelical. And it was, we'll take you as you are, but if you do not think, act, and sing, and read, and do all the things that we do, you can't really stay within 
that church. Right. Um, and there's there's particular um, stories that the women shared about their experiences that, you know, it was great when I first started, but then if I didn't have the same thoughts or I didn't listen or read the same people, it was really hard to find belonging in that group. Mm -hmm. And uh, part of the study that we're looking at in Paul is that in the city of Corinth, it was Jews, it was Gentiles, it was pagans. It was a diverse group of people that started believing in this Jesus that Paul preached. And they were trying to figure out how do we stay together as a church, as a community? And um, and they were a minority group. And so I think what I'm hearing in that quote is it's easier sometimes to be part of the evangelical movement because everything is told to you. Mm. And it's very cut and dry and black and white. And it's easy, like Dave and um, Chuck said, to live in this bubble. What's harder is to have those conversations about diversity, about uh, diversity not only in culture and race and language and religion, but also diversity of thought within some of those streams. Right. Um, and I think, you know, in our Western culture, we tend to take the easier way. Mm -hmm. Right. So before I go to the second quote that actually sets up this next clip by Dr. Dume very well, she talks about um, the outlook of evangelicals on this as a Christian Christian nation and the role that they have historic, historically viewed themselves in as such. Go to the clip, please. Again, this, this idea that, uh, that America was founded as a Christian nation, uh, right? This kind of mythical sense of all that that um, supposedly entails gives conservative evangelicals a sense of entitlement, uh, the sense of, uh, you know, that, that God uh, founded America really as a special nation, mm -hmm. right? Maybe second only to Israel. And, um, and therefore America has a special role and that role is to remain faithful to God and evangelicals, conservative evangelicals understand their role in this country uh, as, as this faithful remnant who will do everything they can to keep America faithful to God as they understand what, you know, everything that that entails. And so, yes, one of the things that I was not expecting when I started this research was uh, to, uh, I, I really had to confront in my sources, this emphasis on authority and how authority functioned, that authority was God-ordained. And so you have to submit to the God-ordained authorities. So women to men, children to parents, you know, uh, 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 church members to pastors, but it has to be the God-ordained authorities. And so if a leader is not deemed to be, you know, aligned with their understanding of God's will for America, then you don't need to, um, obey. And so there are these authoritarian tendencies and also this rejection of, of actual government authorities, uh, depending on whether or not they align with the conservative evangelical vision of what God's will is for this country. And that's where you get a lot of this kind of ends justifying the means rhetoric, uh, because if, if whatever is happening uh, in terms of domestic policies that um, that seem to place America out of favor, out of compliance with how they understand God's will, then you have to fight those. You really have to fight those. And that's where democratic institutions, democratic norms are very quickly uh, set aside. Mm. 
So the notion of authority, this point has been made several times on this show. If you look back at the civil rights movement, and, and even going back further than that, uh, Jim Crow and things along those lines, but during the civil rights movement, so many white pastors, reverends, and Christians utilized the respect for authority line when it came to African Americans fighting for their civil rights. They leaned on scriptural references for things like that. Fast forward to Black Lives Matter and the disruptive spirit of that movement. Well, the, the, the Bible says to, to adhere to authority as God given. And, but miraculously, when it came to, when it comes to mask mandates, right? When it comes to the January 6th riots, and this isn't, I'm just telling you what I've seen and heard. There's been an, a, a, an obvious about face on that same group's outlook on authority when it suits their vision of society. So speak to that a little bit. We'll start with whoever wants to chime in on that first. This, this leaning on authority and utilizing that as they see fit. At least that's the way it comes across. Why don't we go to Brittany first, since she's been having to react to us the whole time. Um, you know, my first thought that came into my mind is, is there an authority anymore? Um, because the authority keeps on changing day to day um, as we waver with our opinions or even more with our emotions to things. Um, and I'm actually looking up a piece of scripture right now and it was, um, it is about the authority. Um, and I think it was quoted by the original attorney general to uh, Donald Trump. And I can't remember who that man was, um, but he quoted it from Romans 13 about, you know, God appoints authority, which she was talking to. But it all comes down to one thing, which was conveniently left out of the quote given by the attorney attorney general at the time. And it's from Romans 13, uh, verse 18 through 10. And it says, Oh, no one, anything except to love one another for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law, the commandments. You shall not co commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Mm. And sometimes I think um, as we've gone through these last several turbulent years, not only in our churches, but also in politics and the society at large is that um, we haven't been loving, not to the authorities that be, but even to our neighbor, the mm -hmm. people that we see day to day, because we are so caught up in this understanding that um, whatever I think should be the truth mm -hmm. and therefore i will find an authority someone i can back that speaks the truth that i think is true mm -hmm. um and so but it's not going back to the scriptures and i think again um that for me is where the evangelical movement lost mm -hmm. gentlemen here, here. Okay. i uh i couldn't agree more uh with Brittany. um uh, and leave it to Brittany to get spiritual on us, you know. Uh, <laughs> um, wonderful quote, and and uh, it brings us back to really a, a simple understanding of, of what Christ was all about and what the faith is all about. And, um, and we have gotten so lost in, um, well, what authority, whose authority, 
uh, where do we surrender? Uh, where do we link our, our arms together with those who only think like we do? Um, all of that uh, has, um, sometimes I feel like, where, where did all this come from? Where, where are ordinary Christian people hearing um, these kinds of, of um, what I really feel are mm -hmm. um, bogus and warped understandings of Scripture from the pulpits all over the country that then you had this large white evangelical community that was doing things that during Clinton's presidency they would have decried um, at the same time. And, and yet now it's convenient to just ignore all that right. and, um, and choose what is, what is of personal power, not what is, uh, what is good for the, the people as a mm -hmm. whole. And um, I, I, uh, that's why I get frustrated. Uh, and, and I'm a white old guy evangelical. So, you know, uh, uh, I figure if there's hope for me, there's hope for, for the rest of us. Chuck, I'll go with but, this, this. Go ahead. Then I'll go always, with this next it's, always, it's always been that way in the church, mm -hmm. though. And I think we make a mistake of thinking that it's just happened recently. Right, right. We have Brittany's um, reading of Scripture and her comment about our uh, evangelical church's focus on Scripture as the authority. That, that brings me to, to something that um, I've wrestled with since I became a Christian a long time ago, that we became all about a set of propositions, a set of beliefs, a set of doctrines. And that's what made you a Christian, that you assented to the right doctrines, uh, you believed the right things. But for me, the heart of the gospel has always been about love and compassion and, and really not about doctrines. Mm -hmm. And so maybe there's some doctrines that feed us uh, and, and help us to become more loving or less loving, but that's really the measure that the church should be using for all things now, St. Augustine, 1700 years ago talked about how we understand scripture and he said any interpretation of scripture that promotes love is a, is a faithful one any interpretation that promotes anything but love is not a faithful one uh, and i think we have a lot of exclusionary interpretations of scripture today that just aren't faithful to the heart of the gospel to jesus and and what jesus was all about you can't read the gospels matthew mark luke and john without coming to an understanding that jesus was about god's love being incarnate in the world he was not a teacher of doctrine he was not a, a seminary professor he was a person who came and showed us how to love and encouraged us to be of the same mind. And that's what the church has to get back to. So that community and society influence that the church traditionally wields, you know, a lot of people look to that to be a, a solution or, or something that is of great help when the community is going through what it's gone through the last few years in particular. I'll go to the next quote that I told you about from a, a white gentleman in the faith. And he says, right, wrong, or indifferent, Take it how you want to take it. I wish that people would just stick to their own and we worship Jesus how we want to worship Jesus. It would be so much easier. He said, it might not sound politically correct. And I appreciated his honesty. He said, but I think he said, I can tell you that a lot of the white people that I know deep down inside, that's what they want to say. And they just won't say it. Your thoughts on that. 
scripture. It's not gospel. It's not what Jesus taught. Mm. So what you're doing is you're saying, and I think Dumay brings this out great in, in, in beautifully in the book. That one got Chuck's eye up. <laughs> <laughs> that what we, what, I mean, what, what she talks about in the book is that we really came at this from the start a long time ago with the idea of this is what we want. We want white people to be in charge. We want men to be in charge. We want a particular kind of culture. Uh, we want society to run this way. And then we took, we, we went to scripture and we found a bunch of stuff that we could use to support that. Uh, it's never been about what scripture taught us. It's always been about what we want and how we can use scripture to support that. So a person who's saying we should just be allowed to do whatever we want, and, and that's what, what white people really want, which, by the way, I don't agree with, but uh, he's not talking about gospel. He's talking about what he wants, and, and that's, we've conflated that with the Christian faith. Uh, in evangelicalism, mm. and, and that's been immensely destructive. Dave, give us your reaction to that quote. I, it's uh, very true. It's uh, church has become of all about. Uh, I just want to be comfortable. I just mm. want to be comfortable. Don't bother me with what's going on in the world around me today. Don't remind me about the the challenges, the struggles, the crises. I just want to hear that God loves and cares about me so I can go on my way and, and live in this kind of fantasy world the rest of the week that I'm okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, uh, it was once said, you know, that, that really um, our role as followers of Christ is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And, um, uh, you know, we, that quote that you share is I, I do appreciate its honesty yeah, because it was honest. people need to understand that is where so much of white America is. I just want to be comfortable. Don't bother me with life and, and the hardness of everything else. But that's not what uh, Christ wanted the community of faithful to be about. It was about, there is going to be hard work of feeling people's pain and entering into an experience of how do we heal each other and and that's all hard work it's not easy work mm -hmm. um and and too many folks come to church just give me a little uh a little taste of god's goodness and i'm good mm -hmm. don't try to give me uh, there was a a, a a poem i think it was called three dollars of god and the 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 focus of the poem was just give me a taste enough to keep me happy don't give me the whole picture of what God is about and what he wants for me. Um, and, and I think that's, we have to first come to that conclusion that we just want to be comfortable. And mm -hmm. that's why we're in the mess that we're in. Mm -hmm. Brittany? So much is going through my mind, but of course I'm gonna bring it back to scripture again because that's who I am. So uh, John 15, uh, when Jesus is at the last meal with his uh, disciples um, and he knows what's about to happen, the commandment that he gives them is to love one another. He said, greater has no one, uh, or greater is, uh, greater somebody love. help me with this. Greater love, has well, greater no love than this, that for someone to lay down their life for another um so my commandment is to you is to love one another and i believe that christ says that 
because he knew that none of them really had fuzzy feelings for one another. Um, they all came from different political backgrounds. Some of them were, uh, you know, revolutionaries that wanted to fight Rome. Some of them worked for Rome. Some of them were crushed by Rome um, and the economy because they were poor and they were just trying to survive. So they're all sitting around looking at these faces of people that they don't agree with. And Jesus knows I'm going to die. I'm going to leave these, these folks. And I need you to love one another. If anything I've done in the last couple of years of my ministry can survive. You have to love one another. So he doesn't say it when it's easy. He says it when it's hard. Right, right. Um, and so I'm hearing that. And I'm also hearing, uh, how do we get past this? I just want, I just want to hear some hope, a little piece to make me comfortable to keep, keep me through the week. And there was an article um, by Reverend Dr. Tom Long. He was a fabulous preacher just recently came out and he talked about Augustine when he preached he didn't preach to one person he didn't he didn't act as if everybody was of the same mind in the group he would call out people and say now to those who and preach to them Mm -hmm. now to those of you who and I feel like that is what we have to do in our churches to Mm -hmm. stay alive that we're not preaching to one homogenous group anymore. We're preaching to a complex range of mm. preachers, of, of, of congregants. Right. From, from Deborah being one of the judges to the, the women that were grafted into uh, the family tree of, of Jesus's lineage going forward from Rahab to tame all these different stories. And then you go fast forward to the New Testament and you see people like Mary and, and how steadfast the women who followed Jesus were as compared to some of the men who buckled under cowardice when it all went down. There's always been this debate about the role of women, the way women are treated, and, and all of that within, this, within a denomination. So Dr. DeMay talks about this, and Brittany specifically, I want your reaction first on this. She, she makes points about the Me Too movement that actually Dave set up for us quite some time ago with some of his commentary. I want you to take a listen to this. Um, but closely connected to that moment was uh, the, the Me Too mo- uh, movement, right? And in evangelical spaces, a kind of hashtag Me Too, and you have also have hashtag Church Too, that this sexual abuse is also happening in evangelical churches. Now, I had I had been tracing this, uh, not even knowing I was going to eventually write a book on on the subject. I've been tracing this for years. Uh, because the revelations of abuse in evangelical spaces were not new, uh, if you knew where to look. And so they were, they were on survivor blogs, uh, survivor advocates were trying to bring this to light, but the, the stories were scattered. And it was in the wake of the Me Too movement, or as part of the Me Too movement, that these stories started to get picked up by the mainstream media and kind of validated and amplified in that way. And that emboldened many more women to come forward with their stories. And so then then you had this moment where uh, with the election of Donald Trump and then subsequently uh, with uh, uh, Brett Kavanaugh's nomination, where you had this, this conversation focused in evangelical spaces about uh, the abuse of women and about how it appeared so many evangelicals, particularly evangelical men, were okay with it, where it was not a deal breaker. You could elect an abuser as, uh, as president of the United States, right? Somebody who, after the Access Hollywood tapes release, was on camera admitting to assaulting women. Uh, and, and then just the conversations around the Brett Kavanaugh um, hearing as well. 
I think it really horrified a lot of evangelical women who had been raised on this purity culture, who had been raised, you know, told that we evangelicals value sexual purity. We promote family values. This is who we are above all. And then, and then you, you, what, what it, it appears to be just, um, blatant hypocrisy. So somebody like Beth Moore, you know, called this out, called this out very publicly and tried to call her fellow evangelicals to faithfulness to, you know, don't be, don't be hypocrites here. And uh, she, she had some strong supporters, particularly among evangelical women, but um, the majority of evangelicals uh, really uh, resisted that. She lost a lot of business uh, she lost a lot of followers and, um, you know, the, the main, mainstream evangelical movement really um, um, went in a different direction. So I think right now there's a, a portion of uh, white evangelicals who are horrified. There is this evangelical reckoning, as Ed Stetzer called it, that that's going on and it is real and it runs deep. Um, how widespread it is, is still an open question. And so I think what we're seeing is people splintering off from evangelicalism, um, leaving institutions, leaving organizations. But for the most part, what I'm seeing is those organizations and institutions are not changing dramatically. So Reverend Dave called this out a little bit ago, and that was one of the most stark about faces I've noticed because I remember the scathing indictment of Bill Clinton for his indiscretion with Monica Lewinsky and to hear from so many people that have that same ideology excuse the actions of Donald Trump. Hey, I don't want to go golfing with the guy. Well, you don't have to be friends with the guy. Well, wait a minute. It's listen, I'm talking about what you said when the other guy did it. It was such night and day. Brittany, react to everything you just heard from Dr. Dumay. Well, I think it goes back to the ends justify the means. If we can get the society we want, if we can live the way we want to live, it doesn't really matter how we get there. So we can trust this guy who admits to sexual harassment and sexual abuse of women um, because I know that I'm going to get what I want out of it. And if I have to, I can distance myself from him but at the same time, um, I have to keep some strands there so so I remain comfortable. I, um, you know, when she was talking about the purity culture, I grew up in purity culture. Um, my friends grew up in purity culture. Some of my friends are still traumatized by purity culture. They were unable to have relationships later on in life because of what we were told as women about our sex lives in church. Um, and the thing that I always noticed, even as a young, you know, 13 year old was that there was always more girls at these purity events than men, because it wasn't expected that men needed to maintain the same amount of purity. And so when you have women speaking up, it doesn't surprise me that they're not listening to them because it doesn't involve them. We can still do everything we need to do. We can still um, have the leaders we need to have in leadership because it was the women that failed, not the men. Dave, encapsulate your feelings as we come to the finish line of this, of this show. What are your hopes on this particular topic going forward, whether it's the role that uh, the church plays and all that we see playing out? 
or what's going on within your own church body? What are your hopes for the future? I, uh, I guess my, my biggest and most simplest hope would be that uh, we would be willing to just look at the face of truth in the face, that we would be willing to see ourselves like viewing a mirror and, and not be afraid to uh, explore the depths of, man, this is really how I was formed, where I came from, and um, along the way, what opened my heart, my eyes, to maybe see a lot of uh, different thoughts and ideas that change that about, about my formation early on. Um, you know, Brittany mentioned uh, that context of, of more women, you know, really more women being in our pews on Sundays than men. And it's because I, I think the bottom line reality is because men aren't hearing what they want to hear about what it means to be a man, what it means to be in control. And, um, and so this idea of, I think the, the whole idea of a, a warrior man, uh, Christian, Christian man, is really just somebody's uh, kind of creative take to try to get men back in the church. Um, and it, it has exploded in our faces. Um, uh, you know, the reality is most men, period, <laughs> Most men, period, and especially a lot of men in churches, are addicts. They're addicts to power. They're addicts to sexuality. Mm. They're addicts to pornography. Uh, there are some that are, that are addicts to substances to help them get through the day. Um, and, and so we're failing in so many ways to help people uh, really understand, well, where's the... Where's the source uh, of my healing? The source is you got to be willing to look at the truth in the face and start all over. Mm -hmm. Brittany, I'll go to you with that. What's your hope for the future? And we'll let Chuck bring it home with his comments. My hope for the future, especially as Dave was talking, I mean, that hits home for me in so many ways that, that men are... Um, faced with so many things that the church refuses to talk about. Uh, so there really isn't a space for them. Um, I just think of so many times our church groups are focused on moms, right? Like moms of preschoolers and, uh, and women Bible studies. But in reality, there needs to be a place for men to confront some of these issues, especially this masculine, um, you know, just disguise that they have to put on every single day um, and not talk about the things that are affecting them. So I think we need to do something like that in, um, to those regards. But my hope is that church becomes a place where all of the things of the world, whether it's politics, whether it's justice issues, whether it's um, sexual sexuality or sexual identity issues, can be a place where we discuss them and we discuss them faithfully in truth and in love with one another. Mm. That is what I believe the church is should be and is here for. And I'm gonna do my best um, to do that in my setting and in this community. So Chuck, I don't have time to play Dr. Dumay's commentary on her hope for the future, mm. but obviously you sat in on that interview as well. And so, uh, 
blend some of that into your own commentary for your hope for the future, where the, the, the role of the church and community and society at large is concerned? I would agree with Dr. DeMace. Um, she, she really struggled to be able to talk about where she finds hope in the church um, and in the world today. And, and she's even more pessimistic about uh, our democratic institutions surviving. She suggested that our institutions are incapable of reform from within. And I don't know if I entirely agree with that, but I really understand that. So where I'm finding hope and where she talked about finding hope is I'm finding hope in Brittany and in people like her, um, and uh, young women, young people of color, even young men who are stepping into leadership roles in the church, and they see things much more clearly than we do with our clouded lenses that uh, have, have been clouded by so many years of, of buying into a particular ideology that is, is false and destructive. Um, so my hope is that there are young people who are who are seizing the opportunity to step up. And, and I think that um, having the Donald Trumps of the world to react against is actually in some way helpful. It, it, it catalyzes us to, uh, uh, to come together and stand up and say, here's what we see, here's what we've experienced as women, as black people, as, uh, as gays and lesbians. And, and we're not going to let that be swept under the rug anymore. And then we can talk about where we go, how we work on those things. But first, we have to shine that light. And some people are really doing that right now, like Dume, like Brittany. And even Dave and I, old white guys of privilege, um, are trying to do some of that. Mm. Well, thank you all so much. This is the, at the heart of these hard conversations shows. Uh, the first one we had with African-Americans, uh, this one with the, the evangelical community and just analyzing that. What we want to do is encourage everyone to look at the role that they themselves play in the solution process. We all have control of or influence over our immediate sphere of influence and it's so easy to say if this group would only do X, we'd be better. Or if this person over here only thought like Y, we'd be better. And hopefully, as we analyze ourselves in these various homogenous conversations along the way, we can all get to a point where we can not only analyze our own train of thought and our own actions, but challenge those thoughts, challenge those actions, and challenge the thought process and the actions of those around us. I think if that happens more often, then these community conversations of these blended groups become much more robust and have much more meaning. And dare I say, especially if you come from those conversations from a foundation of faith, it comes off as much more authentic if you're going to claim a higher power as your source. So thank you all for coming on today and helping to unpack this very important issue. Uh, Chuck Camerata, uh, Reverend Dave Edmonds, and Reverend Brittany Knight. And thank you for, um, for, for tuning in again and, and listening and watching the show. That's our show for today. Tune in next month where we'll have more guests unpacking and discussing uh, issues locally and nationally. You can listen on our show on 91.3 FM every fourth, two, fourth Sunday of the month at 4 p.m. For next, I'm Marcus Atkinson. We will see you next time.